escaped from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants. I need you, Dex. I need the old Blade Runner. Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. If they're a benefit, it's not my problem. I'm Rachel. Deckard. They were designed to copy human beings in every way. How can it not know what it is? Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. If only you could see what I've seen. What seems to be the problem? I want more life. It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? More human than human is our motto. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Film and Water podcast, part of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And joining me for this episode to talk about the 1982 film Blade Runner is uh, the host, co-host of the Radio vs. the Martians and podcast, podcast La Vista Baby, the, <laughs> the Dr. Eldon Tyrell to my J.F. Sebastian, <laughs> Casey Doran. Casey, thanks for doing the show. Thanks for having me, Rob. I'm super excited to talk about Blade Runner. I could talk about it in my sleep, I think. Yes, it was explained to me by my our mutual friend, uh, Mike Gillis, that uh, this Blade Runner is your all-time favorite movie. That's right. I know. I, yeah, it is right, and it's a little cliche to say because I think uh, anyone who's a serious film nerd has a has a raging heart on for what Blade <laughs> Runner is. Um, but it, it and it, and I uh, coming from a household that loved science fiction and loved movies, um, it's something that I didn't even see until I was maybe fourteen or fifteen years old. Um, and even then, I first saw the. We, we could talk about versions later, but uh, uh, that movie on the first pass is nearly incomprehensible. Um, and that was part of its mystery, but I, I guess I'll let you set it up, but it's, it is a enigma that is continually unfolding where I learn more and more about it. And that's, what's so intriguing about it to me. Well, see, that's interesting is that when, when Mike mentioned that to me, and then, uh, I talked to you about it, I thought it would be a nice, uh, it would be a nice dichotomy because, uh, up until a week ago, I didn't like Blade Runner all that much. I, I had seen oh. it. I had seen it when it uh, came out when I was like 11 or 12 and it didn't, it just didn't do anything for me. And then I saw it again on cable, maybe a year or two after that, or maybe a couple of years. And again, it didn't do anything for me. And I always sort of then just put it aside and said, ah, I just don't get it. I, I think that's, it's overrated. It's, it's, it's just not as good as I think it is. And I just sort of forgot about it. And so then when I heard you wanted to do the, do the show. I thought, well, that'll be fun. It'll be it's Casey's all time favorite movie, and it's a movie that I don't particularly like. So that'll be a, <laughs> it'll, that'll be a, it'll be an interesting conversation to have because it'll be such a divergent set of opinions. But I was like, well, of course, I need to watch it again uh, before I before we record this. And so I actually asked for anybody listening. I actually asked Casey which version should I watch, and of course, there's like 19 versions of Blade Runner. Uh, I only watched the one. I watched. I guess the final cut, it's the one without the narration. 
Sure. There's one of two. I think you, you, the Final Cut is probably the one you, the most easily available because okay. it's the one that Warner Brothers really, really wants to sell. Okay. Um, All right. So, yeah. So yeah. I watched it again, and I actually really liked it. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, I actually really liked that. And so I look at it, it's probably just one of those movies that I just was too young to to appreciate, you know, at the age of it's it's definitely very unusual. It's it's not your typical sci-fi movie. It's certainly not probably what Marvel Comics thought they were buying when they decided <laughs> to do the adaptation because I think they probably thought Harrison Ford in a sci-fi movie, we know what that's like. So, <laughs> let, you know, let's, that's a natural comic book move, you know, comic book sure. thing. Um but but so that's that, that's where I'm coming at at this movie. Now, I actually like it quite a bit, but I want to hear you. Why is this your favorite movie of all time? Well, uh, other than, like I said, being an enigma, I think it's a strange – it's this strange holdover where you have a story that was adapted from a book written in the 60s that was purchased by the screenwriter, optioned by the screenwriter, um, and turned into what would have been kind of like a one of those dystopian – 1970s kind of sci-fi movies, you know, and the ones that we were talking about, like a West World or or a Logan's Run or a Silent Running, you know, where mm-hmm. it's a movie with a conscience, you know, it's got a moral at the end. Usually, it's a real bummer of an ending, and uh, the world that it presents has got some kind of uh, present-day going concern as part of the dystopian feature. But interestingly enough, it it bridges the gap into the 80s, and so it starts to. Ha- it's this kind of 70s sci-fi movie that is now has uh, has sort of lurched into the 80s where um you know after jaws after star wars film big big time filmmaking started to get serious and um a guy named ridley scott who just had a couple movies under his belt just finished alien which was a surprise genre genre blender you know it was a sci-fi movie but it was really a, a monster movie yeah um and that just bl- that blew people away of course it w- that was released a year before i was born so um i couldn't have, couldn't have said anything about the watching the experience in the movie theater but everyone thought this movie was going to be because of uh, harrison ford because of ridley scott everyone thought this movie was going to be um just this crowd pleaser blockbuster movie <laughs> and what it turned out to be was a like a slow burn um sci-fi detective noir art film um which is like is nearly impossible for it to happen at that time um and the fact that it got bounced around by so many producers and fell it 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 fell into the hands of the insurers because it ran over budget and everyone hated each other on the crew it it's like it's this really belabored uh, a, a project, a art film project that luckily, just because of the oddity of the time and the talent who was working on it, actually made it to the light of day. Um, and I just, it's just incredible that it exists. And there's no shortage of people who look back on it now, um, even after it did so poorly, but no shortage of people who look back on it now and say, damn, that did a lot of things that changed what sci-fi was on cinema forever. Yeah, it, it certainly, I agree completely. It does feel like something that was gestated in the 70s and just happened to be released in 1982. I mean, it is a fully realized world. And, it, you know, I, when I was watching again, I really, I mean, it's a, it's such a beautiful movie to look at. And, and in terms of its visual aspects, it is it is utterly complete. It it feels totally real, and it and, makes and me... those effects still survive. I mean, some of those effects with the spinner and the rain, some of them still look amazing, even by 2015 standards. Yeah, I mean, I look at this and say, I don't see why we even need CGI. Really, when you can <laughs> when you can build 
a world that looks as as good as this. I mean, right. it looks completely plausible. I mean, I see a lot of Terry Gilliam in it. Oh yeah. Uh, well, you although, know, it's, it's although Doug, this kind of came before Terry Gilliam, really. It, it did. It's Doug Trumbull who's the guy who's the visual right. effects man on this, and he, of course, cut his teeth on Stanley Kubrick's 2001, right, right. and he directed Silent Running, and he also did all of this is either a good or a bad depending on your proclivity. He he did all of the uh, ship effects for Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Right. So he he had a lot of. He had a lot of – he was doing a lot of crazy innovation. And interestingly enough, shortly after this movie came out, uh, the visual effects company that he built um, folded. <laughs> so <laughs> it kind of it kind of emotionally or, or literally bankrupted a lot of people, this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's kind of funny. This movie came out on June 25th, 1982, the mm-hmm. same day as John Carpenter's The Thing. Course. Which is what an amazing day for science fiction. Yeah, that and what was. is it? At the same time in the theaters, you could you could go and you could see uh, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, ET, um, Road Warrior, I believe, came out like a, a week a week later or a week before. <laughs> so basically, all of the box office competition for this was you had a half a dozen movies you probably are going to see before you're going to see Blade Runner. So it was doomed. Well, the funny thing, I love the fact that it's uh, that you know E.T. I am kind of I recognize E.T. for the sort of classic that it is. I I've never been totally warm on it. Even as a kid, I kind of was like, eh, okay, that was all right. But I appreciate that it you know it's it's as significant it is. But by the fact that it basically killed both Blade Runner and the Thing, <laughs> I feel like it has a lot to answer for. I mean, it really does. It killed two movies that. You know, I mean, but look, John Carpenter went on to a great career and really, really, really Scott certainly did, and Harrison ah. Ford certainly did. But I cannot imagine crafting something as sort of weird and, and idiosyncratic as Blade Runner and watching it just fail. Uh, yeah, thanks I'm, to a, a little, you know, a little puppet. You know? It, it's it's the the fascinating part about it is is it's it's failure during its time in the theaters. Uh, that was followed much, much later by its success as being a, a, on VHS, on being on home video. That's really part of the great sort of uh, Phoenix Rising from the Ashes story for this film because, like I said, it's it's a, it's an inscrutable film. It's really slowly paced. Um, it's really obtuse, even with the narration, which was tacked on afterwards, and you can tell from Harrison Ford's performance right, that he really right, didn't right, want to yeah. do it. Um, you, could, you could tell that the... The, the, the second set of producers, the people who were trying to actually get this ready to be shown in front of audiences, were trying to find ways to explain what the hell was going on in the movie because it was really obtuse. Um, and it really wasn't until you could get it from the rental store or you could see it on cable TV many, many times that people got to pick it apart. You got to be able to watch it over and over again. And it, this sounds like a highfalutin thing to say about it, but it's kind of like a Citizen Kane in that respect, where um, it's a it's a really dense movie. There's a lot to it. There's a lot that's going on. And the filmmaker is throwing a lot in your way. And you, 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 don't, you don't need one pass or two passes or three passes. You need more than that um, to get where it's going. And that's really hard to make that impression for that first time when you're going into the theater. And, uh, most of those people had seen nothing like this whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, for anyone, I don't know anyone who's listening to this, who, who either hasn't seen Blade Runner or at least isn't familiar with it, but for anyone who isn't, I'll do the super brief plot 
oh, description sure. <laughs> is it's basically a Blade Runner, which is a retired Blade Runner, which is Harrison Ford. Uh, he is hired by a detect uh, by some cops that he has to pursue, and he tries to terminate four replicants who have stolen a ship in space and have returned to Earth to find their creator. I mean, there's a hell of a lot more to it than that. Uh, right. but, but yeah, but basically, I mean, in terms of its plot, it is you know a fairly scrutable <laughs> uh, plot. It's it's a guy. It's a, he's a detective, and he's going to hunt down these four guys, that men and women. That's easy enough to follow. But it is, as you said, it's all the other stuff around it is so particular. Uh, I mean, the movie opens with this interview between another Blade Runner and a guy who they believe is a replicant, aka you know an android, and mm. they don't really ever indicate what you're watching at yeah. the beginning. You know, you're just sort of like, well, okay, what is this? Why is this guy being interviewed? Why is, and the guy that they're interviewing is Leon played by Brian James from, uh, 40, oh, he's amazing. 48 hours. And, oh, he's and so amazing. he is so agitated yes. and you're kind of can't figure out why he just seems like he'd be getting, he seems to just be going through an IQ test or something. And yet well, he, he seems, seems amazingly mad about all these questions. Yeah, no, it's uh, the first for my first time through. And I see it uh, this time is that you realize that, um, he, he's, he, He's playing like he's someone who's borderline mentally disabled, right. where he can't he can't answer these questions for some reason. And he says, "I get nervous when I take tests." And you're seeing him get more confused. Um, he's you know he's asking what a turtle is. Like he seems like he's kind of a man child who has this job as a janitor. But you of course don't understand why all oh, there's this stress that's going on. And Holden, the the Blade Runner who's get, administering the test, is kind of being impatient with him. As he would with someone who is a simpleton, you know, um, and so you don't quite get it until you get to that moment where he uh, he asked him, "Tell me in the simple words the things that come to your mind about your mother." And he says, "My mother." And then he pulls out this giant four-barrel <laughs> pistol and blows the guy back through the wall, um, thus beginning the beginning of uh, of what I think is I think is the crowning achievement of sci-fi cinema. But um, wow! The, but the but the best part about it is is uh, it is. Um, to me, it's a noir movie. Um, it's cast in largely cast in shadow, and the main character is a detective. Um, he might be he's he, he might be basically a paid assassin, but he's doing detective work this entire time. He has to um, receive orders from the chief to find out how to track down these um, replicants, and they're hard to track down because they are they look just like human beings and they can pass for human beings. Um, but because they're not human beings, they're replicants and they have this special status where they're not allowed to be on earth. They can be killed at any moment's notice. And hence the reason for having Harrison Ford. Um, but even that's pretty obtuse, right? Even, even the, uh, even his whole process of hunting them down, um, it leads you, it, it doesn't necessarily lead you along the primrose path. There's still a lot of things about it that you don't get the pictures, the scale, that every everything everything seems to come up by surprise, um, and I love the fact that even now, even even when I know beat for beat what's actually going to happen, um, you still I you still have that sense of feeling like you're in the middle of a mystery, which is what makes it a great noir detective film. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it, it, all the little touches they throw in to seemingly for no I don't want to say no good reason I don't mean that as a pejorative but it's just like uh, the guy that the, uh, the JF Sebastian played by William Sanderson hmm. who some of the replicants go and find and they want him to uh, why is it they go see him I'm completely forgetting they go see him because <laughs> they go see him because he is one of the few, few people that can help them get to Tyrell who was the creator their of creator, the creator that's right yes. right right now he now that guy Jay Sebastian suffers from a premature aging disease, 
Methuselah so syndrome. It, the Methuselah <laughs> syndrome. So he is because I mean, the, William Sanderson was uh, mo- most famously playing one of the was Larry from Larry Daryl and Daryl on Newhart, yes. Yes, and he's an older guy, but yet he in, in the movie he's like in his twenties, right? And I guess you know part of the he empathizes with the replicants, one of whom is um, Daryl Hannah playing uh, Pris and uh, uh, Rutger Hauer playing Roy. And who he, are both amazing, by the way, who yes. are absolutely incredible. The pr- Pris is able to do this um, thing where she is a femme fatale, and she's also uh, she's deadly and beautiful and sweet at the same time. And Rutger Hauer is just... A, he's a powerhouse. It's incredible. Uh, go on, go on. No, he does look, yeah. I, I read in the, the comments about that, like, Ridley Scott <laughs> hired Hat Rutger Howard just by seeing him in some of his some of his other, his foreign films. Yes. He didn't meet him, and he does look amazing. He does look like a replicant. He doesn't look quite human, and they didn't do anything to him. He just had that look. He looked perfect in sort of non- Descript in terms of he didn't look like he was a particular nationality kind of he looked right. like what a robot might look like if you had built a guy to you know to to try and pass and he's he's supposed to be the character is supposed to be a killing machine I mean he is a soldier he's he's engineered to become a soldier in places that are too hazardous for human for human beings to go because um, the replicants are largely slave labor and uh, you know and pleasure models and, yeah, and you Chris know, is a pleasure model yeah right um, and he yeah it's those it's those steely blue eyes um, and they become the sort of the substitute for um, what what that amazing kind of um, wolf like quality to him where he's just he seems like he's an animal he's so strong and fast. Yeah, and the, uh, the uh, one of the other replicants is uh, Rachel, played by Sean Young, who meets up with uh, Harrison Ford and Deckard in the beginning, and she gets put through that test. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the film noir, she looks like a character right out of a 1940s movie. I mean, she's yeah. got that hairstyle and the very red lips, and the, she's constantly smoking, and she's got this coolness to her where you're – you're like, well, all right, she's probably a replicant, but you don't necessarily know because she seems as she seems like I said, she might would have, would have been out of a movie from the late '40s or the early '50s. And Harrison Ford himself is not terribly warm in this film. I mean, he's no, 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 no. Uh, uh, this the funny thing is that um, everyone's performance is kind of dull and muted yeah. in this movie. Is is Harrison Ford? Um, he gets the most dialogue, and he, of course, has to go through the. He has to go through the entire journey. But um, even the humans are kind of are very one note in this movie. Um, so it's not surprising. It keeps you. I think the idea was to keep you guessing. Where um, uh, the humans all feel like they sort of have a lack of emotions themselves, and so that keeps you in suspense about who who could be a replicant, who couldn't be a replicant. That was a big piece of the um the original philip k dick book that they sort of dispense with in this movie is that um there's always a nagging paranoia about who could or who couldn't be um a hit a a replicant in disguise in this movie they tell you up front right you know who they all are um but it's just fascinating that they that they what he tried to do with these performances is that everyone is kept very low-key and there's not people aren't getting too excited in this movie, and maybe that's part of why. Maybe that's part of why it's some people find it a little slow. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it. It is a very atypical Harrison Ford performance. Uh, I yeah. mean, after especially coming on the heels of Han Solo and Indiana Jones. Yeah, uh, if they were if they were hoping for Indiana Jones, they were the audience was sorely mistaken. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he gets thrown around a lot in this movie. He gets, yeah. I mean, he seems he's always kind of two steps behind almost everybody. I mean, he 
in some cases, there is a there is one scene uh, that's really I thought pretty funny where he goes to he finds another one of the replicants, Zora, played by Joanna Cassidy, who's a stripper, mm-hmm. and he puts on this fake accent. Uh, pretending to be uh, some sort of like union rep and he's making sure that, you know, and he's kind of talking in his nerdy voice and he talks about, we got to make sure that you're, you're not being exploited. And then he, he forgets the accent in the middle. He drops and it. He drops it and then he picks it back up again and he, he ends up having to shoot Zora. Right. Uh, and kills her. And, you know, it, that's like sort of incredibly sad, but it's, it's, he looks sort of dogged and exhausted through the whole movie and, and pretty, as you said pretty much everybody in this movie looks that way because and again in terms of the set dressing everything is dark all the mm-hmm. buildings look like they have no lights in them except for these blaring lights that come in through windows which gives the feeling of sort of constant surveillance there's right, always somebody right. watching and that kind of thing it has that paranoidy feel without you know without having like shock troops you know, it's it, it's much more kind of subtle. You just feel like there's always somebody flashing a light in your eyes, whether you want it or not. Well, there's the expectation. I mean, the they there's a, almost a throwaway line. Um, JF Sebastian is is leading Pris into his apartment, uh, and uh, it's the Bradbury Building in Los Angeles. It's a famous oh right, right. Uh, famous shooting location that's been in hundreds of movies. Um, but of course, he says. Um, you know, not much of a housing shortage around here. What the implication being is that the, that Earth is a pretty empty place. Right. So it, the the fact that uh, there's lights going around uh, going around everywhere, things are all boarded up. That's just kind of par for the course because the world is fairly empty. Um, it also also that is fascinating is it's in Los Angeles and it's raining all the time, which right. is not something that happens often in Los Angeles. So something must have gone wrong. Plus, it seems like most of the animals are dead. There are no yeah. animals. There's a lot of animals in this, but they're all fake in this movie. Yeah, it's a it is a lifeless movie and that's that's uh you you do see like there's an animal market and there's the hilarious scene where he uh sort of locks eyes with an ostrich in the in the <laughs> animal market and uh, you assume that it's a replicant like everything else. Um but yeah, there's that weird thing where they're um it, it, the streets are impossibly crowded for a place that's empty. Um and there's there's a surprising a lot of density and activity going on. It's very dirty. Um, there's stuff in the frame everywhere. There's really no frame in this movie where there isn't a layer of dust. There isn't trash thrown onto something. There isn't things stacked on top of each other. And that's a really Scott trademark, but it is just works so well in this movie. Speaking of a stuffed frame, I assume that you have seen the shot, the one still photo of Carrie Fisher dressed in Blade Runner gear. No, oh, you know, no, I, uh, I, it, it came up on a thumbnail on Reddit, and I'm sad that I didn't click on there, it. Yeah, you know? there is a shot of her in full Blade Runner costume, along with other extras, and she's standing on one of the sets, and there's like the neon, and she kind of looks a little prostitute-y, although a lot yeah. of the characters. And as f- I was, lo- I was looking it up because I thought, is there any shot that she's in? And there is no record that I could find of her actually in the movie. It doesn't mention her on IMDb. I don't um, think she is. So, and I watched the movie, but it's really hard to pick anybody out. There's, as you mentioned, there's dozens of people in any given shot. I love the idea that, I mean, as far other than um, the Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which was on purpose, I don't think there is a movie that has two Star Wars cast members in it. Like, post-Star Wars. I don't think any of that's ever been done. And I love the idea that Carrie Fisher is somewhere in the background of this movie. That just charms the hell out of me. I mean, I can't find her, but I that that photo does exist. There she is, and she's in full costume. So I just you love know, that idea. 
It's so interesting that you bring up the Star Wars point because uh, the beginning of the script that they um, they only make mention of, but obviously it's not in, and that was never filmed, is that um, the the backstory to the replicants is that they are somewhere out, off of Earth, and then they basically take a space shuttle and they kill the crew, right. and they, there's a mutiny essentially, and they come home. There was this very long, elaborate battle scene that the movie was supposed to open with showing um, this sort of uh, this sort of battle and them commandeering the ship and going back to Earth. But we look back on it now, and I'm glad, I'm glad that it doesn't exist because the great part about this Blade Runner is that it all, it's all terrestrial. Um, they live in an age when people go out into space, but space is just a distant concern. You know, it's concerned with the world, sort of the underworld that is Earth at the time, and the overworld that all, the rest of the humans and most of the exciting stuff is actually happening on. That's... Um, just backdrop. That's just exposition. Um, so I'm I'm happy that they decided not to uh, show a lot of spaceships and uh, a lot of things blasting into orbit or something. I think it grounds it in the way that sort of sells the realism of the movie. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a detective movie, a noir movie that just happens to be set in the future a little bit. And yeah, there isn't a whole lot of stuff. I mean, a couple things that I looked, I found about this movie in doing research was that it was originally thought they wanted Robert Mitchum to star in it. Oh, that yes. that I cannot picture. I just Dust, cannot picture Dustin Hoffman as well. Dustin Hoffman as well. I yes. can't picture yeah. either one of them in a sci-fi film. Robert Mitchum, though, that would have been right. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> he was pretty. He was pretty old by the early '80s. Yeah, that would have been yeah. unbelievable. And as we referred to earlier, um, there are multiple versions of this movie. The original movie uh-huh. did not have uh, voiceover. Uh, the original and... movie did have voiceover. Oh, it did. Okay. Well, didn't they go back and add it, or did it had it from the beginning? It had it. The theatrical release had it from the beginning. Oh, okay. All right. um, there was a works. So this is a little complicated. I'll do it. I'll try to do it as quickly as possible. They screened the movie beforehand. Um, what was essentially the same movie, what they call now the work print release. Um, it was a rougher cut of the movie, which did not have Vangelis's amazing or Vangelis. I think it's Vangelis's amazing score. Title sequence was different, and they didn't have the narration. And from this, from the feedback they got from those initial screenings, there were four or five of them around the country. Um, they thought, okay, people don't understand this. So in the final theatrical release, they added Rick Deckard's um, Rick Deckard's voiceover, which relates a lot of things that you don't know exist if you only watch the director's cut or the final cut, which is that Rick Deckard had an ex-wife, you know, hmm. um, that Rick Deckard understands the gutter speak that Gaff uh, says when he's they're sitting at the noodle bar. There are all um, these little... Played by these, uh, Edward James almost. I should mention. Edward James almost, which is, uh, he is an incredible character. He has a, brings a lot of life to a character that has very little dialogue in the movie. Yeah. Um, but they, in the 90s, when the rental store boom came up, Warner Brothers... Um, made a director's cut that was based off the work print that wasn't exactly authorized by uh, Ridley Scott. He wasn't too happy about it. They released it. It was one of the first movies that WB put on DVD, actually, one of their very first movies. Makes sense. Um, And then flash forward to 2006, I think it is, they gave, uh, Warner Brothers gave Ridley Scott a bunch of money and he made his final cut. And the final cut is, I think for my money, it's it's the definitive version of the film and it does... It it adds some things that aren't really don't really add to the story all that much. It removes like some of the wires that the the spinners, the flying police cars, you, are visible and shot and stuff like that. So there's some stuff that it's, it's it isn't like a George Lucas special editions thing. It was oh. more like a more like a, he was just correcting the things that were you could not be corrected at the time because of how practical effects worked. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, like uh, apparently in the original version, the when when uh, Zora gets shot, it's a stunt woman, and it was pretty clearly a stunt woman. Yes, and then yeah. they went. 
went back and they actually literally got Joanna Cassidy to redo the stunt and like digitally match her. And apparently she fit into the same, like she could match her movements down 30 years later, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, no, that, that part, that, those, those little touches that reminded me of, um, when I think it was it the third X-Men movie where they took Ian McClellan and, uh, Patrick Stewart. Oh, ben, and yes. Yeah. Young they them, yeah. them. Yeah. I, I, I love it when they, they, you make a digital effect in a movie that has the has the the benefit of not being uh, actually recognizable. It, like you can't tell that it's a special effect, but the but what it does is it gives you an impression that you don't realize consciously. Um, and you know that's a that's a very expensive thing to do. Um, so it's really also rare when a filmmaker is able to do it. You know. Yeah, and and so the uh, the original ending that was in the theatrical cut is has a much more upbeat ending because again, spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, but basically. <laughs> Deckard and runs off with Rachel, uh, and even though he knows that she's a replicant, he's in love with her. He falls in love with her, and they they take off. And the original theatrical cut has this and this grand uh, overhead shot of mountains, which was kiped from unused footage from The Shining. Uh, oddly <laughs> yes. enough, which is this movie has two connections to The Shining. It has that scene, and of course. Dr. Terrell is played by Joe Turkel, who was the bartender in The Shining. Yeah. Uh, and the, all that is clipped off in the final cut, which is the one I saw. It ends with the movie, the version I saw, ends with Rachel and Deckard back at his apartment. And they basically, after after Roy has been, Roy has been, well, not killed. He basically dies. He just dies. His, his body runs out. Uh, and Pris has been killed. Deckard takes off with Rachel, and the elevator slams shut, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah, and yeah. that to me is a much more effective ending than that shot of the class. All that sort of blue sky stuff at the end—it just that was not necessary. It it really does remind me of the. Um, there was a rumor that the the fellow who they brought in to write Deckard's voiceover was Terry Gilliam, and so it really mm. reminded me of what happened with Terry Gilliam and his. Uh, his ending to Brazil, his opus Brazil, where uh, for television and I think for the American, for, for the American audience, this, the the, uh, the the producers of the movie, the distributors forced him to do a happy ending, where the characters <laughs> instead of him dying in the ex, in like in the the interrogation chair, he actually does escape uh, with his with his love interest, and I, I felt like that was a if if it actually was Terry Gilliam doing that in 1982, it was sort of an omen for what was going to happen to his own movie. But no, it wasn't Terry Gilliam who did it. Yeah, they were definitely didn't think that the ambiguous ending uh, played well with audiences, so they sort of shoehorned this happy ending. And I think that's one of the largely one of the things, like the voiceover, that most people say good riddance. That's funny because to me, it's not an ambiguous ending. I mean, he clearly gets away with her. I mean, that it's just. I didn't think that you know you needed an extra shot of him driving away. Like I get it, they got away. I know you know that's funny that people perceive that as ambiguous because to me I didn't I didn't take it as such. It was like oh, he runs off with her. I mean he we know that although they do suggest in the new version, um, not the new version in the theatrical version that Rachel because all these replicants have a built-in lifespan. Right. Of four four years, and it's suggested that Rachel too is going to die in four years, so he's going to run off with her, but she's going to eventually die anyway. But of course, as Gaff does and talks about in the voiceover, none of us lives forever. So right. what was the difference? But in the in the voiceover that as you talk about, Ford delivers in this flat monotone way on purpose because he didn't like it. He so he sort of purposely <laughs> sort of uh, did a bad performance. Uh, that Rachel might not have that built in, so she might right. live longer. So yeah, that's a, that's a little 
they they stru- tried to stretch it an awful lot and the thing um for for me the blade runner is is a movie that's about the journey not the destination um because it's got that it's got that sort of smash that sort of smash cut ending um that i think is i think is shockingly effective yes but um but the 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 thing that keeps life to the movie i think is how i think i kind of look at it like a fractal where they're just pieces of the elements of the movie that you can continue to be looking at and it tends to open up and you see you tend to see more detail than you did before and one of them of course is the thing that i think everyone talks about as a cliche which is the deckard is deckard a replicant um aspect so um they don't if you um if you were to to watch the movie with the theatrical cut kind of his his I'm sorry. If you watch the theatrical cut, uh, his voiceover sort of suggests, oh, he had an ex-wife before and he had this life. And you presume that, um, you know, that Rick Deckard is a human who's got the same human problems and he's going to be he's around yesterday. He'll be around tomorrow, that sort of thing. Once you remove um, the voiceover and uh, once you start packing together some things that were either not intended or I think I think some of them were happy accidents, um, you get the sense that. blade that the that he is a blade runner that hunts blade runners i actually wanted to ask you is that i'm sure you had read or heard about it before did you pick up on any clues about deckard uh being a replicant or not or is this just something that you think that all the sort of fan chatter around there made you uh made you realize that's this is one thing that i think a lot of people uh get confused about is because a lot of people don't actually see it (laughs) I didn't really see much there that led me to believe he's a replicant. Uh, The stuff that people seem to point to the most about uh, Gaff with his little uh, origami unicorns that he Mm. leaves behind. Uh, Or not the unicorns, but the little origami birds. To me, that just felt like a a visual and thematic flourish that the movie is full of. And it didn't, to me, indicate any sort of evidence that Deckard was a replicant. And and to me, I'm like, I... You know, I mean, not to disparage anybody's opinions or, or, you know, because the movie invites such things because it has so much weird stuff in it. But I just, to me, it's like, well, what's the point of the story if he's a replicant, sort of? I mean, to me, it's like it's the fact that he, you know, that he trained, the, the love that he feels for Rachel transcends what presumably would be, you know, the, the barrier between human and non-humans falling in love. So, I no, I, did, I didn't see any evidence to my mind. It- it's fascinating because um, in interviews around the uh, um, after the release, Harrison Ford said that um, there was no chatter whatsoever about him being a replicant. So his performance was um, was bowing to that. However, many many years later, after the director's cut, I believe Ridley Scott um, let the cat out of the bag that he had thought all along that Deckard was that Deckard was a replicant, which is kind of interesting because that means those two are thing, two things are totally at odds with one another, yeah. right? <laughs> so it it could have been a brilliant uh, a brilliant move on the part of Ridley Scott to make, to make his performance more believable, or it could just be as I actually think that it is more. It's more titillating to believe that it's just some more bullshit that uh, Ridley Scott weaved after the fact. Um, that led people to take more interest in his movie again, which uh, good for him because it definitely yeah. is something that stuck around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I again, I did some more reading and then uh, about this movie and and the idea of of where um, 
what's his name? The the author. Uh, uh, okay, Dick. Yeah, Philip K. Dick. In terms of where he got the idea or the thematic idea from, you know, doing Android's Dream of Electric Sleep was he had read some Nazi documents. And, you know, he talked about that there was a, a Nazi that had, you know, reported back to the United States after he'd been captured and talked about that, you know, while he was working somewhere in Nazi Germany, the cries of starving children kept him awake at night. Yep. And it didn't keep him awake out of guilt. It kept him awake just because they were so loud. Right. And he was <laughs> – Philip K. Dick was so horrified at that idea that – and he thought, well, anyone who who has so little empathy – really can't be considered human anymore. You yeah. know, there were different species, and that led him in a roundabout way to, to the idea of, well, are these replicants any less human because they're built of, you know, they're not made of flesh and bone, they're made of this other material, but they feel, they have, they care about things. And, you know, I, I yeah, I mean, it, it's, the I, you know, the movie's, you know, uh, for all of its weirdness, it is a detective story and it's a love story. And those are, you know, two very straightforward things from movies. So, yeah, no, I don't I the idea that he's a replicant to me is like it's a nice theory. And, it, you know, it fits in with a lot of other movies that have weird theories. But I, I like it just fine that, you know, De- Deckard's just really tired. Just a really tired guy. <laughs> yeah, there's the, it's it might be the best uh, fanon ever created, or uh, or it might be the worst marketing ploy on the part of Ridley Scott that Hayes ever tried. I don't know which one it is. Uh, I I prefer to fall on the camp of that he uh, that he might be a replicant, but ultimately it's the the question is ambiguous because the film doesn't have anything concrete to say about it. So I think I like the fact that it could stay ambiguous, which is. One of the things that makes me nervous about what really Scott will try to do, although he's not directing it, about the new movie that's coming right, out. Right, right. The sequel. Now, it's funny that this film, Blade Runner, takes place in the far-flung future of 2019. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested <laughs> right. to see where the, where the sequel takes off. What, how, as, if, you know, this is your favorite movie of all time, mm. what, how are you, where are you on there being a sequel at all? So... Uh, we so my my panel did a. If you want to hear about me pontificate more about this and uh, <laughs> and Mike, we did a panel I think last year in 2014 about Blade Runner where um, I said that I didn't think that a Blade Runner sequel was necessary and that in doing so, actually releasing it would probably tarnish the original um, because it would try it would they would necessarily tease out some of these things that were left ambiguous on purpose and not allow them to just stand. Um, I still have those same reservations. The difference being is that Ridley Scott is no longer going to be directing it, right. um, which after the Prometheus fiasco, I think everyone is probably okay with uh, yep. him taking his hands off of it because he clearly doesn't want to do justice to any of his old his old properties. Um, Denis Villeneuve, who is a uh, I believe he's a French Canadian director who has made some incredibly good movies in the past five or six years. Um, he did just a prisoner, I, right? Prisoner? He did Prisoner. He did uh, Enemy, which is a Jake Gyllenhaal movie, and then he Sicario just Sicario, came out, which is, right? That's yeah, the one, yeah. Which uh, um, is one of that's probably my if if not for Mad Max uh, Fury Road, uh, Sicario would probably be my favorite movie of this year. Um, wow. It's just the kind of storytelling that doesn't the kind of storytelling that has you guessing what's going on the entire time. It, the, the characters are three-dimensional. They're not uh, c- cardboard cardboard cutouts. Um, and they're f- you, have, you, you have a lot of anxiety watching the movie. You're, you're, you're concerned a lot of the time because you have no idea what's going to jump out at you. 
um, he is an amazing director, and the fact that Villanueva now has been tapped um, to do the second movie makes me a little less nervous, um, only because uh, him and the combination of the cinematographer, Roger Deakins, um, who you may know from basically every single Coen Brothers movie uh, that's ever been filmed, um, d- taking the idea of revisualizing this world, not necessarily revisualizing it because it needed to be redone with CGI, but um, uh, taking a, a story that's not told like a you know, Star Wars Episode One, or told like a reboot of uh, Total Recall, uh, but a story that could be its own sort of standalone slice of life uh, set in the same universe could be interesting. But the problem is, is with the fact that um, Harrison Ford said he's already on board and they're clearly writing the Rick Deckard character in there. To me, that sort of sullies it a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's to me, it's always like the problem of why do you need C-3PO and R2-D2 in every single movie? Um, well, you got to have them in there because that's what everyone's going to expect. No, just take take these things out. Let I, I love the I, I love the world. The world is what makes it. Um, that's famously Ridley Scott said. Um, you know what's outside the windows? That's that's how he decided to go about making Blade Runner. Um, and what's outside the windows was amazingly compelling. Um, I'd like to see more of what's outside the windows. I wouldn't necessarily like to see the uh, the you know the continuing adventures of old Indiana Jones. You know, <laughs> I just I just don't want to see that. Um, but I think because I'm such a hardcore fan, and because I just have to see, I think um, uh, Ryan Gosling, I believe, yes, um, yep. is is tapped to play the the lead role in this movie. Um, I'm I'm I'll be curiously optimistic, and my my thinking has come around on it. I think. I think I might have been uh, too hyperbolic when I said that I think that it could tar- that it really could tarnish the original. Um, I don't think it ever could tarnish the original. Um, people will, if it's a forgettable movie, people will forget about the movie and they will still remember the original Blade Runner. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I uh, there was a. Did you ever watch Mystery Science Theater? Yes. Uh, I I love that show. I'm like a super fan of that show. And there was an episode once where. A movie, I think it was, oh shoot, I forget the name of the movie that they did. But anyway, it had a kind of a downbeat ending, and the the bots were depressed about the downbeat ending. They didn't like that. And Joel says, well, why don't you guys just write your own ending? And they're like, what? And he goes, yeah, it's just fiction. You can write whatever ending you want. And they're like, oh my god. And they were just blown away at this concept that you could... And I think about that like, you know, my favorite movie of all time is Richard Linkletter's Before Sunrise. And that was a movie that, you know, for many years, I thought I was the only one that ever saw it because it was never remarked about for his great, you know, everyone always talked about uh, Slacker and Dazed and Confused and, oh, yeah, he did that other movie with those two people, with Ethan Hawke or something. And so that movie was sort of forgotten. And then they announced they're doing a sequel. Right. And and now I am of – and of course, now they've done two sequels. Uh, Yes. I I kind of hold those movies in two separate camps in my brain. There's the – the story of all three of the movies and there's the movie of just the first movie. Uh, and I sort of look at it and say for all the pluses and negative pluses and minuses of those two uh, follow-up films, I'm able to look at the first film and say that film still exists by itself perfectly. And it has my ending in my head. And just because there's another ending that Richard Linklater has given us doesn't mean in my mind, I have to follow it. So I could see the sort of same thing with Blade Runner, that if this new Blade Runner movie is just indifferent, you know, you just don't care about it. You just forget about it, and you know, you still, you still just enjoy Blade Runner just as much. 
Yeah, and uh, I think the analogy that I made was, you know, one of my other all-time favorite movies is Chinatown. Big surprise, another movie about a, a detective. <laughs> um, you know, they did make a they did make a sequel to that they called did. The, Two, the Two Jakes, right. and it was not and it was not a terribly good movie. Um, but for me, I still enjoy going back and watching Two Jakes, even though it is incredibly flawed and it is a, it's an inferior movie. And um, it makes the character of Jake Geddes a little less interesting than he was portrayed in the first movie. I appreciate the fact that both movies existed, and I love to go, to go back and watch the two Jakes, even though I feel like it is just sort of a pseudo-sequel more than an actual sequel. Right. So that could happen. Um, I'm going to remain cautiously optimistic. More uh, more or less the same amount of optimism that I have about uh, the next Star Trek movie, but that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, when, we, when Blade Runner 2 comes out, whenever that is, we'll have have to have you back on and we will discuss Blade Runner 2 whatever they choose to electric uh, electric boogaloo, electric boogaloo yeah uh, <laughs> so I said I, I get the feeling that, that, that you could talk a lot more about Blade Runner I, I get yeah. uh, I, I hear that enthusiasm in your voice for it <laughs> which is fantastic I, and it's anytime anybody loves a movie that much that's a, I always think that's a great thing so um, but we're, we're going to wrap it up here for now so Casey okay. where can people find you on the internet so, uh, RadioVersusTheMartians.com is our sort of main hub. Um, my Twitter handle is at RootWinterGuard, but just you can just find me through Radio Versus The Martians. And uh, as you teased a little bit at the beginning, we just started our new uh, Splinter podcast called Podcasta La Vista Baby. <laughs> uh, and hopefully the whole, the name communicates exactly what you're going to get. Uh, Mike, Mike and I, who listeners of your show will be familiar with, are going to take all of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's movies, who we have a great amount of affection for, and uh, with another with another panelist, and we would invite you to come on, Rob, actually, if you want to make a selection of a, a good or bad Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. I would, I've would. Yeah. i already told Mike, uh, Batman and Robin, I have to come oh. on for Batman and Robin. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Uh, so we're going to go through, the, not chronologically, um, and we're not, we're not just going to front load it with good ones, but we love, un- unapologetically, we love Arnold Schwarzenegger, we love to go through it. That's um, podcast com, And it's a very fun show. The first episode was on The Running Man, which was tremendous. I really enjoyed it. I can only imagine if, if Arnold Schwarzenegger had been in, it was in Blade Runner 2, that would be everything you like in one place. <laughs> and he obviously has to play a replicant, obviously. Of course. I mean, no way is he human, for God's sake. So, well, anyway, I suggest anybody listen to both those shows. They're both a lot of fun, and uh, you said they're super awesome. So, uh, as always, if you want to send an email to this show, it's firewaterpodcast.net. The, the uh, Twitter handle for the show is fireandwaterpod on Twitter. So uh, keep your cards and letters coming, everybody. And Casey, thank you so much for doing the show, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was so fun. Thanks, Rob. Excellent. So as I said, everybody, thanks so much for listening. And until next week, that's a wrap. Too bad you won't live. <laughs>